Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. Well, well, fresh off a bit of a hiatus since episode 45 at least where we explored all things GameStop. The Market Pulse podcast is back and let me tell you there is plenty to catch up on. Too much perhaps, or definitely too much as I was putting it all together, but I'll give it a crack. Most of what we'll cover this week pertains to our domestic market here in Australia because we're well into earnings season and there are a few sort of good parts, some highs, some lows to cover off on. So yeah, this will be somewhat of a little bit of a quick fire episode because there is just so many individual bits of news and company information to touch on. So without further ado, Let's get cracking. Strap yourselves in. My name is Dion. You are listening to episode 46 of the Market Pulse podcast, the Unity edition. Well, the market was a little bit average for us here in Australia this week. I thought perhaps a good check-in this week would be not just to look at the markets for the week, which we will always do, but how it's actually fared since 2021 kicked off. So we'll just start with the week first. So this week, the ASX 200 was down 0.5%. The US markets were actually in the green though. They The S&P 500 was up 1.2% and the NASDAQ was even a bit better, up 1.7%. Now, like I said, if we go to the year so far, so 2021 so far, our benchmark index, the ASX 200, it's up uh, 1.8%. So it's it's trucking along okay there. Classic um, American markets, the US S&P 500's up 6.3% for the year so far and the NASDAQ up 8.77%, which is maybe a good reminder of why you should always diversify and have some investment in the US as well as Australia. So there you go. But let's get into it, quick fire time. I'm gonna start with Nick Scarly. And I throw this in here, not because I am particularly interested from an investment thesis for, uh, for Nick Scarly, but it, it is one of the benefiters of the COVID period, even though, you know, just like the rest of the market last year, the share price for Nick Scarly did get hit pretty hard. It plummeted to the, it plummeted, sorry, to the lowest it had been since 2015 at, at a certain point. That would have been in March. And of course, the this initial panic of, oh my God, retailers are screwed because there's lockdowns and there's no foot traffic and economic recession and reduced consumer spending. But as we know by now, parts of the sector got hit with a bit of a sugar hit. And Nick Scully was one of those. And I guess similar to the ones we've spoken about here like Temple and Webster or JB Hi-Fi's, Harvey Norman's. There, there was this narrative of people spending more time at home, deciding to upgrade their home, make changes to the furniture, you know, all that kind of good stuff. And that really came through for Nick Scarley's results. There was also a fair bit of stimulus pumping through from the government through the economy, so no doubt that helped things. Their release to market on their half-year results is a little old now. It actually came out on the 4th of Feb, so about 10 days ago. But for investors, it looked pretty good. So their interim, interim dividend, they declared 40 cents compared to a year ago, 
their interim dividend was actually 25 cents a year ago. So that's a pretty big increase. Uh, net profit in the half, so the financial year so far, uh, so the six months of July to December 2020, that was up 90% net profit. Now, they noted that it wasn't all roses. So a big issue for them were supply chains. So, you know, the, just delaying getting stock in uh, primarily from China during the middle of a pandemic and getting it unloaded at port. You know, every, I mean, it's not just them. Everything from furniture for Nick Scarly all the way to, you know, if you're a new car dealership, uh, just getting stock in from overseas was uh, very much impacted and affected in, in the same way there. And probably the funny thing about their results was this kind of weird drama around JobKeeper because Nick Scarly was a recipient of the JobKeeper programs, uh, specifically as reported here in the AFR by Sue Mitchell. Uh, she wrote, quote, Nick Scarly received $3.6 million in wage subsidies from the Australian and New Zealand governments in the December half despite delivering a 90% increase in profits to $40.6 million. So $3.6 million in, yeah, so wage subsidies from the governments, mostly Australian government there. And this this kind of narrative started to formulate, well, and it got a little bit political, but there was this push saying, well, maybe you should, or maybe Nick Scully, they should pay that back considering business turned out all right for you. And there was this really fun, I thought it was funny, quote from the CEO, Mr. Nick Scarley, or Anthony Scarley, his name is, uh, in an interview, he wrote, sorry, he didn't write, rather, he said, it's a difficult one because it's really a board issue at the moment. We haven't made that decision. This is in regards to returning the JobKeeper money. Uh, this is said, Mr. Scarley told the Australian Financial Review. On the other hand, our tax in the half in brackets, $17.1 million is $8 million more than last year. And JobKeeper was $2.5 million after tax, which was funny because when I was reading it, I thought I'd missed something at first, but I was reading it, I was like, yeah, but isn't that how it works though? Like if I say, say if I go to work tomorrow and uh, someone's, my boss or someone says, okay, you've been promoted effective today and your new salary is going to be $40,000 more than what you currently earn. Well, you know, sure, I'm going to make some more money. It's going to clear more money in my hand, but I'm also going to pay more tax. Like that's the that's how it works. I don't know. Anyway, to be fair on them, they did actually announce to the ASX in a statement uh, during this week, actually, that they will indeed return that cash. And look, also to be, to be fair on them, there have been businesses in a similar position, i.e., done all right at the end of at the end of the day and they haven't actually returned it or haven't indicated that they're going to return it but it was funny nonetheless well i did mention temple and webster so let's take a look at them one of the i guess more notable success stories for investors in 2020 and, and this business unlike say a nick scarley doesn't have to worry about store closures and foot traffic um, due to lockdowns, they are a purely online play. In fact, I noticed when they released their half-year results to the market on the 2nd of February, so the other week, in their presentation and investor note, they tout themselves as Australia's largest pure play online retailer in the furniture and homewares market, in which they cite Ibis World for that title, which I guess makes sense. I didn't know that though. So a really good year for Temple and Webster, well, half year so far, but yeah, it was a good year for them last year. 
positioned really well to just leverage off the opportunities that came for a business like this in 2020. I've picked up a few notable points from their market release. Maybe I'll quickly talk to the share price over the past year. Temple and Webster shares closed this week out at $11.05, although they have touched as high as $14 over the past 12 months. If we look at just financials, their revenue smashed it out of the park up 118% year on year. And I noticed another positive uh, is their cash position. So in June last year, in June 2020, they had about $38 million in cash on the books, but now that's um, up at around just over $85 million, which is good. They are spending a little bit more now, so they've ramped up their marketing and advertising during this period, but that kind of makes sense as well because... I guess they they are benefiting from this organic trend that has rewarded them really well, but they probably want to capitalize on that, drive a bit of brand awareness into the markets that might actually be a little bit unaware of who they are or what they you know, offer, um, maybe to potential consumers who are yet to give, say, a purely online furniture retailer a crack. Some sort of non-financial points that also look good, their active customers are are up a tad over 100%. So in December 2019, for example, they had 335,000 active customers. And as of December 2020, that was now 678,000. And their definition of an active customer is a unique customer who's transacted with them in the last 12 months. So I guess in the last 12 months, if you were the same customer who came back three times, you should, you would be, or you should be only counted as one. One thing I didn't know is they're also playing into, I guess, what you call the commercial space. And I don't mean they're not limited to just, say, a commercial buyer, but I guess playing into the kind of things that, like, I guess a Bunnings would sell for home improvement purposes, say, like, sink fixtures or tap fixtures. So still the kind of, so more like renovation-related stuff, not just the furniture and appliances and homewares and the likes, but just sort of broadening to that theme of home improvement. Now, the share price didn't actually shoot off to the moon off the news, but to be fair, it's already done that over the past year. Like a year ago, it was around $3.90, so it's more or less tripled in price since that point. I think it's fair to say a lot of the good news was somewhat baked in, um, like those good results were baked in, but they're good results. And I think I think it's, there's, there's still this, a decent runway for Temple and Webster to continue the good times. Maybe not as explosive as it was last year for them, but certainly as their popularity increases and they expand their channels to diversify from just being just purely just some residential consumer homeware focus, uh, there's probably some good growth to, to expect there. I'm going to switch over again to some bank stuff. The first one we're going to talk about is CBA. Look, as a full disclaimer, I'm a shareholder because I used to be an employee. So this isn't advice at all about them, but they are the first big four retailer to come out with half year results. So, and they're also the biggest big four retail bank. So they are good to look at in terms of indicators that would be broadly felt across the entire banking sector. The second one we'll talk about after this is AMP. The <laughs> the miserable outcast of the final financial sector. Condolences if you're bag holding those shares, but AMP, uh, we'll, we'll get to that. But CBA came out with their first half results for the financial year. And remember banks, not that it, I mean, it's pretty obvious, but they had a lot of headwinds in the last 12 months. 
what they track as net interest margin or NIM, under pressure sector wide. Look, it's been under pressure for years now. It's not just like COVID caused that or anything, but NIM is the basically like the difference of what the bank is charging consumers or customers for a credit product, say like a home loan or a credit card, uh, minus what it actually has to pay out in the form of uh, bank savings. Not that you get much in bank savings at all anyway, but that is the NIM or net interest margin in a low, 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 low interest rate environment like we are in right now. That puts a lot of pressure on banks, um, especially big retail lenders like a CBA or a Westpac. The other headwind was COVID just causing you know general economic financial distress. I can't remember the exact episode last year, but we did speak about just the number of loans across the bank's that were effectively put on ice. So, you know, pausing repayments for customers who perhaps they lost employment or lost significant amounts of income. Um, and that happened all over the sector for all the banks. So in terms of some financial results, so net NPAT, net profit after tax, that was down around 20%. The bank's sort of preferred uh, indicator of cash net profit after tax, that was down 10%. But the one that we looked at last year and what I just mentioned was about loan arrears and this had, this had improved quite a lot and it's come back a long way from where it was. So as at 31 January, approximately 25,000 home loans remain in deferral, which is a total balance of $9 billion. So 25,000 um, home loans, but that's down from 145,000 loans as of 30 June 2020. And you might remember that number from the episode when we spoke about all the various banks and um, their current deferral numbers. SME loans uh, on uh, repayment deferrals as of 31 January were approximately 2,000 loans, but that's down from 67,000 loans as of 30 June 2020. So that's definitely a big positive there. The good news for shareholders is they're actually starting to bring their dividend back up. So declaring a first half year dividend at $1.50 per share, which would make a lot of shareholders happy considering that's what people generally invest the banks in for, for for that income stream. But one of the interesting things that I took from these results was uh, about their share trading platform, Comsec, because given the market bounced back last year from the lows of March and this whole narrative around the young quote-unquote Robin Hood trader, although we don't have Robin Hood in Australia, but just younger investors joining in the market and just might not be just younger investors, but given that we're in, like I said, such a low interest rate environment, people looking for other ways to put their money to work and, you know, the topics of, you know, GameStop like we spoke about in the last episode and and Reddit investing communities, all that kind of narrative going on. I've been curious to see how that would flow on to, say, the amount of new business or new customers coming to trading platforms or investing platforms in Australia. So in the CBA results, they say that Comsec reported 230,000 new accounts in the first half of this financial year, which is tons. When you consider that, you know, it's only like around six and a half million Aussie adults actually own shares directly. And that's, and Comsec's just one stockbroker, right? And the other thing was 70% of all the new customers traded via digital platforms like mobile phones. And I put that out specifically because... I would say no doubt this trend will be seen on across all stockbroking platforms in Australia. You'd, well, you'd hope so, but I'm sure the likes of NabTrade, SelfWealth, 
open trader, the, like the new ones, like Superhero. Uh, then you've got like US investing focused ones like Stake. I'm sure this kind of rush of new customers and new accounts is being felt across the board. So that's interesting. A lot of people entering the market, opening new accounts, people opening secondary accounts like under different names, like a joint name or a self-managed super fund, whatever it is. But clearly this this push of the new investors joining the market is happening in quite big numbers. And I was quite quite shocked to see just how many new accounts had been opened there. But there you go. Okay, let's talk AMP. Oh God, I promise I'll make it quick. So if you haven't been keeping up towards the end of the last year, there was actually some potential good news for AMP, a potential lifeline from the US under the name of Aries Management Corp, which is basically like a West Coast investment management slash private equity house, a few things. But they've, they made a proposal towards the end of last year. It wasn't locked in, so it was a conditional offer for AMP uh, around the $6 billion mark. And if you so based on that potential takeover, it would sort of value the AMP shares at a dollar eighty-five. And at the time that those that news broke, they were trading about a dollar thirty. So you can see the point where the share price kind of shot up on that news. I guess a, a little bit of excitement, offering some good news for people that might be wanting to get out of their AMP investment or their shares. Excited that perhaps this overseas company might be saving the day a little bit. And for context, that's still pretty low compared relative to where AMP were trading just a few years ago. So right before the Royal Commission, so say the start of start of 20, 2018, they were closer to around $5.50 a share. I mean, let alone how far their share price has fallen since the 90s. But fast forward to this week or to to now, the AMP share price is back down to around $1.32. It's down around 16% this week. And that's because they they came out with their half-year earnings like all the companies we've been speaking about so far. But they also told everyone that this Aries uh, management are no longer interested in that that offer of $6 billion for AMP. So not good there. I'm sure there were people that just sold out because they're getting sick of it. But assets under management in the financial advice and superannuation businesses fell 8% over the year or by $8.3 billion. AMP Capital, which is generally touted as a better part of the business, they suffered a 7% tumble in assets under management. So that's the amount of funds that they're managing. So that's outflows there. And the underlying profit, the underlying net profit after tax fell just over 30%. So not a pretty picture. And I guess with Aries pulling out of the game, sort of pulling out of the game. There's this indication that they're still interested in that one that one part of the AMP business, which is AMP capital. That's different to say the financial planning arm and the superannuation part of AMP. But I guess you I guess if you're a shareholder, you're kind of thinking, well, we're back to where we were six, eight months ago. It's back to kind of square one and there's not much of we're not really sure what's on the horizon at this stage. So yeah, as I've said Better places to put your money, certainly, but that's AMP. And we're going to exit out of the finance sector. We'll go back to a little bit of retail. So lastly, I'm going to sound off on baby bunting under ticker code BBN. And this is somewhat of a little bit of a follow-up from episode 32, which was the Gold Rush edition, where I spoke about baby bunting for the first time on this podcast and also uh, their plans to, I guess, review 
a potential launch into New Zealand. That was confirmed this week. That was given the green light. Not only did Baby Bunting release some pretty good results for the market, certainly one of the better retail stocks on our market, but they also confirmed that New Zealand is going ahead. Their first store planned to be open next financial year. And their, I guess their longer term plan is to have 10 stores across the pond in New Zealand. Now, the share price actually fell this week. It's down just over 7% for the week. Not that their results were bad news, but expectations are very high for a company like this as uh, I guess a lot of those kind of retail stocks that have been good growth stories, especially the, the more online players like the Temple and Webster's or like a Kogan. And the results, I guess the results, whilst they were good, they didn't quite hit those lofty high expectations. Hence the little bit of a slide this week um, add to that, it's not the cheapest stock in terms of its price to earnings ratio or PE ratio. It's it's relatively expensive under that measure. So if you, I'm just going to check my Comsec account. So at the moment, Baby Bunting, well, according to Comsec at the moment, it's saying that the PE ratio is 39.25. So pretty high for a retailer like this. I don't think Apple has a PE ratio of of being that high. I think it's close, but it's not that high. Um, that's not really relevant, but granted, I guess, good growth, but it's kind of certainly wants to stay on that track given the the expectations there. So yeah, baby bunting, a retailer to those wanting maternity or baby goods, their online sales make up around about 20% of all their total sales. Now, they also noted that comparable store sales growth are up 15% for the half year so far. And it's also tracking along well, so it's in good health going into the second half of this financial year. They said that the six weeks in the second half so far of the financial year, it is at 18.5%, so a little bit better than the average for the, the first half. Actually, on that, and it's probably important when you... It, will, it's, it is important, sorry, for a business like Baby Bunting where they still have their physical brick and mortar locations and these and plans to keep establishing further stores. I think... From looking at their release to market on their results, I think they have like 50-something stores in total, but they're gunning for around 100 at this stage in their current plans. But that word I said before, that term I used before, so comparable store sales growth, it's important to understand for companies like this because you'll often see it quoted because it's a, a, a an important indicator that analysts looking at a, a retailer like this would be wanting to understand. So comparable store sales growth, well, it can be negative too, but in the case of baby bunting, thankfully it's positive, so it's growth. Um, but comparable store sales give you, I guess it gives the investor a little bit of a picture on how the more, I guess their established stores are performing relative to the performance of new stores. So it's measuring the, the sales growth and revenue, but it's taking into account the new stores. And what I mean by that is because if you're a company that's growing like a baby bunting and you're opening those new stores, it, you, you also kind of want to you want to look at the revenue total totally, but also differentiate between the revenue growth that just purely comes from the fact that they've opened a new store, say in a brand new market, and they're just going to get revenue out of that, right? So because you also want to understand, well, how are the existing locations performing as well? Hopefully that makes sense. I guess the other way that it can be used is to look at different periods of the year compared to each other, right? So like, uh, let's say 
Yeah, so let's say you're JB Hi-Fi and you're comparing the sales in December versus April, right? And I don't know what they are, but I'm just going to say that they're probably a lot higher in December given that time of the year being the festive season, Christmas, Boxing Day sales, right? So it doesn't mean much to say, oh, well, December was way better than April. So comparable source sales can also be used to look at different periods of the year. So looking at the store sales in, say, the December period this year versus last December period is, is a more fair example of looking at how the trend is for that particular business. So that's baby bunting. I am curious to see how the whole New Zealand market opportunity goes. They, I think, on yeah, I'm just looking at their market presentation. They said an assessment of the $450 million New Zealand market opportunity and yeah, they said and wanting to have a, a network of at least 10 stores. They've already opened up for online sales to New Zealand. So they actually are operating in the market uh, in online terms. But they, of course, are also a store location. So they're wanting to actually cement themselves in that market. And yeah, I'm curious to see how that goes and see how that makes part of their growth story. But that is it for the Market Pulse podcast. That has been episode 46. Thank you so much for tuning in or tuning back into the to the Market Pulse podcast. I know it's been about it's been two weeks since that last episode. I am definitely still following the GameStop story. It's very it's very interesting. Um, there's actually this week the House Financial Services Committee is holding a hearing, and there are certain figures coming in to testify in relation to this GameStop hearing. Like the CEO of Robinhood itself, uh, Reddit CEO and co-founder, CEO of Melbourne Capital, the guy from Reddit, Deep Fucking Value, or his, na- his name's like Keith or something, but um, he's testifying as well. So I am curious to see what comes out of that as well. So I'll be looking at that. But as always, if you have a question for the podcast, shoot it through at marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. My name is Dion. Thank you for tuning in as always. Enjoy the rest of your week. Cheers.